Hello everyone. Hello. Can I have your attention? Right. We got two lectures to do now. Um, first on control of respiration, and then we look at VQ analysis. So let's get into it. Hopefully by the time we are through, we will be able to, um, not sure why that appeared down there. We'll come back, we'll come back to it. don't have any control here at all. Um, IT? Could I just ask you to put back in your, um, because it didn't time is showing up, but you didn't, um, yeah. So I give you, uh, is everyone hearing me now? Yeah. That's okay, fine. Okay, 10 more seconds. <laughs> All right. Right, so what do we have in terms of control of respiration? As usual, uh, the, the key, the, the band orchestra is controlled by the um, centrally. It's controlled by areas, especially in the medulla, in the pons, and in other parts of the brain. You're going to get sensory feeding to these areas from your per, uh, peripheral chemoreceptors, your mechanoreceptors, your propriety receptors, and we will discuss those. And you're going to send out the messages that are going to come out to control respiration via your respiratory muscles, via your diaphragm, etc. So what we have essentially is among the things that work, in centrally you have two types of chemoreceptors. You've got your central chemoreceptors and your peripheral chemoreceptors. Your central chemoreceptors are 
ventrally and um, in the medulla, the ventral surface of the medulla. The chemoreceptors, as you know, same chemoreceptors. I'm going to pick up the oxygen concentration. You've got them in your carotids, so by the bifurcation of your carotid artery, you also have it in your arch, the arch of the aorta, the um, peripheral chemoreceptors. In terms of, of the other sensory inputs, you've got your a number of different types of, of, of receptors. We will look at the mechanoreceptors, the pulmonary mechano, the stretch J receptors, irritant receptors. And don't forget muscle pro, um, propria receptors, because when you, you take a step off to start to run, your, the, your muscle propria receptors are going to sense that, send impulses up century as well into your uh, medullary pons area. Output from that through your spinal motor neurons controlling the various muscles of respiration. The three respiratory centers, only two are, are shown here. You've got your, your uh, dorsal respiratory group here, and this is in the medulla. Your ventral respiratory group along here, stretching from the, um, the pontine area uh, right down through the medulla. And you have some in the pontine, uh, you have a pontine respiratory group as well. The dorsal respiratory group, what does that do? Well, what, what do those group of, of, of neurons do? They're essentially largely responsible for control of, of your inspiration. They're active during inspiration. And this is a group that is near your NTS, which is your uh, nucleus tractus solitarius. And they, as I said, they control the muscles of inspiration and the output is via your phrenic nerves to your diaphragm, and obviously your intercostal nerves to your intercostal muscle, receiving sensory input from your, the various um, peripheral chemo and mechanoreceptors, and through nerves 9 and 10. The ventral respiratory group shown here, that's an interesting group because that's where we thought that your pacemaker, the pacemaker of your the de facto pacemaker of your respiration is situated there in the complex called the prebotinger complex. And these um, fire, fire the, of the neurons spontaneously as the pacemaker in the heart does. And the other areas in the ventral respiratory group are responsible for um, above normal inspiration and also for active respiration. So those will come into being, especially when you exercise, etc. The pontine respiratory group, this has a tonic control, and this is the um, controls and regulates the smooth functioning of all your um, respiratory muscles. That's the pontine PRG, or the pontine respiratory group. Ramp activity really speaks just to the concept that some neurons have become activated. They, in turn, activate other neurons, and you get a positive feedback, as it were, um, up to a maximum, and then it will cut off. 
your inspiration being about two seconds, your expirations, you know, being a bit longer. It's shown here what would happen. The, the, the phrenic, as shown by the phrenic nerve activity, increasing, increasing, increasing. Then it will cut off. You get the longer phase of expiration. And just shown here is an inspiratory ramp neuron and an expiratory ramp neuron along here. Other centers, obviously your cerebrum, you, you think about going to make some voluntary action, and your cerebrum clearly has a, a, a place. The medulla um, oblongata, we mentioned that, with the um, dorsal and ventral respiratory group, the pons. They used to speak a lot about the apneustic centers and pneumatic centers, but not, um, this is more, you know, more of a historical interests in, in um, being those being present in the pawns. Emotional responses, don't forget that, that those play a part in your whole respiration. You get anxious and your respiratory rate will go up. Um, if you get angry, if fearful, etc., all through your limbic system and your hypothalamus. Right, now specifically to the reflex pathways. We're going to look at the pulmonary stretch receptors, irritant and J, and the proprioceptors. The pulmonary stretch receptors, well, as the name suggests, stretch receptors, so where they lie? They lie in the smooth muscle of the airways, and they fire proportionally to the transmural pressure. So the stretch receptors firing proportionately. Um, to the transmural uh, pressure in the lung. And they continue to fire in the continued presence of stretch and just ad adapting pretty slowly. And they're also responsible for the excitation of the off uh, switch and prolongation of expiration. The irritant receptors, on the other hand, they are located in the epithelium. And again, your name tells you what they're going to be doing. They're the irritant receptors, so you expect that they're going to respond to um, noxious substances, to smells that are, and particle depositions. And they're stimulated by various chemicals. They are histamines, serotonins, prostaglandins, etc. And they're going to be activated during um, inflammation. That's your irritant receptors. Lung edema also will stimulate these um, re receptors. And what do they res result in? They often result in coughing. If you inhale, if you inhale some toxic fume, you're going to cough, and you're going to cough as a result of these irritant receptors that are in the area epithelium. The J receptors, or J stand with just the pulmonary capillary receptors, are also called um, C, um, they are also called C-fiber uh, endings. There are two types, the alveolar and the bronchial. The alveolar, <coughs> um, and that, that speaks to obviously where they're located. The alveolar C-fibers respond to lung injury, um, such as pulmonary edema, um, pulmonary embolism, but they're not, notice that, they're not sensitive to 
inflammatory mediator. So they don't respond to your histamines and your prostaglandins, etc. They respond to um, lung injury, but not, not sensitive to the inflammatory mediators. The bronchial um, fibers are, are sensitive. The bronchial C fibers are sensitive to the inflammatory um, mediators. And these bronchial C fibers, these are responsible for bronchoconstriction and rapid shallow breathing area secretion, the type of phenomenon you get with uh, asthma. Asthma would classically cause bronchoconstriction and area secretion and rapid breathing. The, um, the bronchial C fibers uh, also involved with the cardiovascular changes in, um, in the form of hypertension and bradycardia. So you, you've got your bronchial C fibers and your alveolar C fibers making up um, your J receptors. Proper receptors, we won't go into those in any the details. Suffice it to say, if you you will, you, I'm not sure if you've done that already, you the test that you can do to check for your appropriate reception, the nose finger um, test, and you, you require appropriate receptors to get your, um, know about your spatial distribution, and without that, um, you, you would have to, you would need your eyes. If you're asked to walk along in a straight line, etc., with your eyes closed, then it becomes a problem. This chart, I will leave it up to you to, to go through this because it speaks for yourself. Just a few things to note that the uh, afferent pathways largely through the vagus. In the case of the nasal irritant, they obviously come through different ones, the trigeminal olfactory, and the appropriate receptors will come through the spinal pathways. And what would the various pathways do? Well, um, if you, you are stimulating the cough reflex, obviously you're going to cough. If you're if you, um, stimulating the infl inflation reflex, the Herringbone inflation reflex, that stops inspiration. The Herringbone deflation stops, uh, starts um, inspiration, um, etc. Of, of interest from more of interest from a clinical point of view and what you will see a lot of is the J receptors with pulmonary edema. You get pulmonary edema, your J receptors become stimulated and through via your vagus you're going to get increased respiratory rates, tachypnea, the person gets a sensation of respiratory distress, dyspnea um, in, in, in that setting. Question. I've given it away. Do you agree with the answer? 
some disagree with me. Well, tell me. Some, some say the area smooth muscle stretch receptors. So why do you say that? Because the answer was there. Hmm? <laughs> why did we say area um, muscle stretch receptors? Don't forget, look at your history. 72-year-old, sudden onset of chest pain, admitted to hospital. Diagnosed have a large MI, large um, infarction of part of the heart. Four days after admission, becomes dyspneic at rest. And when he's examined, found to have crepitations in the mid and lower zones. What is likely happening here? Huh? Why? Why your, your colleagues, for those who didn't hear, are suggesting pulmonary edema. Why pulmonary edema? Why heart failure? How does the MI cause the heart failure? Huh? How did the MI cause the heart failure? Decreased contractility. Your pump, your pump is not functioning effectively. You've infarcted a large area of the heart. The, therefore, your, um, your ejection fraction is not going to be... At, uh, normally, you can have an MI. It might not, it will not send you into heart failure of necessity. But if it is severe or if you run a complication since it's developing arrhythmias, etc., that could be enough to trigger you into heart failure. Fluid starts to back up. The, um, you're going to get increased uh, left atrial pressure, increased pulmonary venous pressure, increased pulmonary capillary pressure, increased pulmonary capillary pressure, fluid exuding into the, uh, into the alveoli. And that's what you hear when you listen and you pick up the crepitations. So yes, and that would have been stimulated by the alveolar C fibers. Right, central chemoreceptors. Let's look a bit upon those. These are located in the ventral surface of the medulla, and they respond to changes in the PCO2 and pH of the CSF. The, what, is, what we must recognize and focus on here is CSF is largely impermeable to hydrogen and bicarbonate. So metabolic acidosis, metabolic conditions will not affect um, the central chemoreceptors. So how are they affected? They're affected as a result of your changes in your PCO2. The, uh, the blood-brain barrier is very permeable to oxygen and CO2. And the CO2 will diffuse across into the CSF. Um, CO2 will um, form a carbonic acid dissociate to hydrogen and bicarbonate. And that is what causes a strong effect. So this is what you have happening here. Uh, CO2 diffusing across but the, and forming carbonic acid and it is this hydrogen that really then affects the, hype, the, key, the uh, ventral key, um, central chemoreceptors. The hydrogen in the bloodstream, the bicarbonate in the bloodstream, because it's relatively impermeable, it does not affect the 
on these central chemoreceptors. There's little um, protein, uh, there's little protein to mop up the excess of, of hydrogen ions in the CSF, and the CSF is sensitive to the changes in PCO2, as we mentioned before. Uh, raising the PCO2 gives uh, larger uh, decreases in CSF, and actually the chloride plexus will, will um, respond with changes in bicarbonate. What, what is also important to recognize is the, what is happening centrally. When you, you give, uh, when the CO2 response is quickest peripherally, um, or I should say changes in um, oxygen and carbon dioxide are quicker picked up peripherally. But the strongest response is centrally. It's seven times stronger than what you get peripherally. Uh, the acid-base response, here you see the pH changes from 7.1. Let's say, let's look at the metabolic acid-base changes. And as you, you become more alkaline, there is a change in CSF pH, but not that much. But what happens with respiratory changes, um, acid-base changes? A slight change of, of, of pH as a result of respiratory changes, and look what happens. Look, look at the, the slope here. So the respiratory changes are far more important in, in terms of changing the um, CSF pH than the uh, metabolic changes for the very reason that I mentioned that CO2 can diffuse across whereas the metabolites, um, bicarbonate and hydrogen, do not diffuse across. What happens when your CSF pH uh, it becomes uh, decreases or it becomes more acidotic, obviously it raises the ventilation and it raises it pretty steeply. This is alveolar ventilation as against um, pH. So pH is one of the determinants, obviously, of, of ventilation and that will obviously also include the PCO2 the changes the pH and the pH will change the alveolar ventilation. The peripheral chemoreceptors we mentioned as being located in the carotid bifurcation in the aortic arch. And you remember that the carotid um, sends off the herring nerve, which joins up the glossopharyngeal. And the, from the uh, aortic, you would get uh, uh, pulses going up via your vagus. And the peripheral chemoreceptors pick up your PCO2 PO2 and pH. And it picks up, if you start to, to exercise, and um, you will pick up that pretty quickly. That's the, the quick response um, will be through the peripheral, but the strong response is through the central. Well, we mentioned this already, the carotid body, where it's located. And interestingly, that carotid body has its own artery supplying it because it doesn't want to, 
take blood, the blood that is flowing past it, it doesn't want to utilize um, oxygen from that for sensing and then give a false result. So it has its own um, blood supply, plus the fact that, of course, it's a high flow um, area of the bloodstream, and so that lends to um, very quick and sensitive pickups of change of, of say, oxygen. The glomer cells in these sites, and much more known about those in the carotid body, they are the sites of the chemoreceptor. What happens? You get a decrease of, of, of uh, let's say, of oxygen. And that decrease of oxygen has um, eventually caused a depolarization of the cells, has a negative effect on the potassium channels, causes depolarization of the cells, and the depolarization of the cell leads to opening of voltage-sensitive calcium channels and increases your intracellular calcium, and that um, causes exocytosis of the neurotransmitter um, vesicles, which will then activate the afferents going to the, um, the central nervous system. So that's how the glomer cells in these in the, um, bodies respond to hypoxic situations. But note this. You really only start to get significant. This is your up, uh, partial pressure of oxygen, and this is the response and in the carotid body. When your oxygen drops between, this is 100, this would be 100 millimeters here, uh, between about 80 and 60, you start to get an increase, but it really only gets marked between 30 and 60. This is when you get that um, exponential rise of, of response to hypoxemia. So the glomer cell then um, picks up, decreases the partial pressure of oxygen, and it becomes depolarized and stimulates these central nervous system afferents. But what can also do that? Increase of carbon dioxide can also do that. Increase in partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which will cause acidification. And obviously, the acid load will also cause the cell to depolarize. So you have three factors here acting on the peripheral uh, chemoreceptors, hypoxia, hypercapnia, hypercapnia, and increase of hydrogen ion concentration. And these are all shown here, the hypoxia circuit you saw before, hydrogen ion um, produce uh, um, and increase of partial pressure of carbon dioxide, which is also going to, by uh, forming carbonic acid and by carbon dioxide, also lead to um, increase of hydrogen ion concentrations. Now, the, so you have the character bodies, you have your AR, your character bodies detecting, as we said just now, PO2, pH changes. Um, character bodies also detect PCO2, but only increase ventilation. Note that only increase the ventilation slightly, about 20% or so. The major response for the, um, the carbon dioxide is the central chemoreceptors. They detect PCO2 and provide a strong ventilatory um, response. 
the aortic bodies also pick up and decrease partial pressure of oxygen. And the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, the body will try to keep that within about a three millimeter uh, mercury uh, range. So what do we have happening? If we plot the partial pressure of carbon dioxide against the ventilation, and let's say in a patient with a normal PO2 near 100 or so, with any increase of partial pressure of, of carbon dioxide, you get a rapid increase of ventilation, a rapid, a quick response. And if you progressively make that person more hypoxic, that response becomes even steeper. This is the response here at 37. Response is even steeper, um, almost a vertical um, response um, to any change at that point. If we now look at the what uh, partial pressure of oxygen against um, ventilation, you, uh, you have a person with a PCO2 of 36, and, and as the, the, you drop that partial pressure of, of oxygen, as that decreases, you're going to get an increase of, of um, the, the ventilation. And that is going to become even more uh, acute as you drop that pressure um, to that pressure, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, when you, in, you decrease it to 36. Sorry, I said this was 36. This, the first curve obviously was 49. And what you've done here is decrease the partial pressure of car, um, carbon dioxide to 36 here. And then the, that, a given uh, Monkel hypoxia here would give an, an even of, uh, a quicker response with that lower partial carbon dioxide pressure of 36. So then to summarize what we're dealing with, arterial PCO2 is the most important stimulus to ventilate drive. Note that again. Central receptors are primarily involved, but the peripheral chemoreceptors, they also are, play a vital part and they respond faster. The response to PCO2 is potentiated, we just saw that, by uh, low uh, partial pressure of oxygen. Now, of interest is what happens when the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, uh, it, what happens in chronic diseases where the um, carbon dioxide is high but the pH becomes compensated. You have conditions like the classic one that you will encounter is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You've got situations where the alveolus is going to be blocked off, there's going to be destruction of the, net, uh, the, the smooth muscle in the lungs, and you get buildup of PCO2. And if you get buildup of PCO2, obviously you're going to get an acidotic situation but the pH is going to be compensated for eventually through your kidneys. That buildup of CO2 will become, say, you'll get a respiratory uh, uh, kidney compensation 
for that that appears PCO2. And then the hypoxic drive becomes important at that point. So if you imagine, as I said, a 60-year-old with emphysema, chronic conduct, um, conditions that the smokers, heavy smokers can get in as young as age 40, mention the fact that emphysema, you, you get um, air trapping in the alveoli, you get air trapping, you excessive mucus air trapping, and also you get um, destruction of the alveolar set, uh, septum. And the patient becomes hypoxemic. The hypoxemia um, is obviously you know, going to be chronic, and that hypoxemia in these patients is due to VQ mismatches. We'll, we'll discuss that in the, the next lecture, how the, why the VQ is important um, in, in these type of settings. But what is important um, to know is that these patients, I say the COPD patients will be hypercapnia, um, but it does not necessarily, uh, the hypercapnia does not necessarily develop since the body increases the alveolar ventilation, the patient is going to be breathing faster. And that is ventilation allows you to change the PCO2 uh, pretty readily. Uh, so what happens in, in this situation? The arterial PO2 falls, but the PCO2 may not necessarily increase much because of compensation. And if the PCO2 does um, increase chronically, as you know from your um, you did your re renal right, acid base? Okay. Well, I just touched briefly on that. The, from the Davenport diagram, which you will go into in detail, uh, you will see that respiratory acidosis will be compensated for. The PCO2 will be kept about 50. And let me show you what happens. This is where you will start off. The person becomes acidotic, they develop a respiratory acidosis, and so the pH will drop, and, but then they get a, a, a renal compensation, which you will go into in more details. So um, the renal compensation will allow for a metabolic acidosis, uh, alkalosis, alkalosis. The kidneys, in effect, you build up, CO2, you're going to become more acidic. The kidneys are going to secrete that hydrogen ion. That's what is seen in effect. And the blood pH will therefore tend to be pulled back up. And bicarbonate will also increase. And you will see in more detail, further in more detail, when you come on to acid base, that the, um, the, you start off at this point, but you will finish up here with a higher plasma bicarbonate, a higher plasma bicarbonate at this level as part of the compensation for the acidosis. Um, the, and the kidney having secreted hydrogen ion. Right, what with, in the patient with COPD then, you've got this compensated blood pH. Uh, the peripheral uh, chemoreceptors do not de de detect hyper 
capnia as well, we, we, as, as we just mentioned. But the central chemoreceptors, what is happening there? The choroid plexus will restore the CSFPH because it's, it's what's happening peripherally, it's what's happening um, centrally. You've got that buildup of CO2. And we saw the CO2 going in to cause the acidosis. And the choroid plexus is going to respond by secreting by carbonate into the C um, CSF. That's the compensation that's going to go on centrally. So under conditions of hypercatnia, the central chemoreceptors uh, will gradually lose their ventilatory drive as the pH of the CSF comes back down to normal. Because if the choroid plexus is secreting um, bicarbonate, that is going to pull it back down. And so the thinking for years has been that under these type of situations, this is now when you've got compensated situations, that the hypoxemia becomes the important drive centrally. Yes, hypoxemia plays an importance, but it is not the be-all and end-all, as I was sure in a chart coming up. As I just mentioned, that the increased drive to ventilate, therefore, comes from the hypoxemia in these chronic situations. The peripheral chemoreceptors in the um, carotid body, um, especially when the PO2 falls um, be below about 60 or so. And I just mentioned that the previous thinking that in chronic hypo hypoxemia, the ventilatory drive is lost because of this compensation, and the drive to, to ventilate determined by the partial pressure of, of oxygen. But in more recent um, times over the last decade or two, a number of studies, further studies have been done on this situation. And here, here we are giving patients um, high concentration of oxygen and monitoring what is happening with the uh, minute ventilation. As you give this, um, the, the red chart is the, um, here with the minute ventilation, and the blue is what's happening with your CO2. As you give uh, this high oxygen, initially there's a dip in the, the uh, minute ventilation, but then it picks back up, and it picks back up to near normal. At the same time, what, what happened with the CO2? When you gave this high dose of um, high concentration of oxygen, these four working, Obi and his colleagues, they noticed that the uh, minute ventilation, the carbon dioxide, sorry, the carbon dioxide concentration rose when you were given this high dose of, um, of oxygen. Now, you would expect, you would expect that as the minute ventilation dropped off, the carbon dioxide will um, rise. We are going to retain carbon dioxide, fine. But then the minute ventilation, um, th then the minute ventilation picked back up, and the carbon dioxide concentration you would expect to, to have come back down to normal. It didn't. It kept going up. So this and other studies have led to the concept 
that indeed and in fact um, oxygen in oxygen you've got to be careful how you give oxygen but it is not um, the like it's not going to cause the, the major catastrophes that we previously thought what you have to be careful about how you give it that I want, and I want to stress that what is happening is that the VQ mismatches are what are um, responsible. It's not just about what is happening centrally. The VQ mismatches within the lung. So the widely held belief that too much oxygen causes significant um, respiratory dis, uh, depression. This is now being disputed in the literature. The carbon dioxide uh, retention from depression has been overemphasized. That's what I was saying in essence. And administration of oxygen and PCO2. Uh, the PCO2 rises. You saw the dip in ventilation, it rises, but not in proportion to the very minor changes. And the key is that the carbon dioxide retention is more likely a consequence of VQ mismatchings, which we will discuss in detail, rather than respiratory centered depression. So, key take home messages. What's the clinical, the clinical importance of this? The clinical importance is that when you have your patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they're coming, you can give them oxygen, but you just have to give them oxygen and titrate them. You titrate the oxygen to allow the partial pressure of oxygen to rise to about 60 to 65 because these folk can have very low partial pressures of oxygen. Or you might be measuring the saturation, and you try to get the saturation up to 88 to 92. So you give oxygen in a strength that will pull the saturation up to 88 or 92% and titrate, um, so, because you won't be constantly going and doing it. To get the partial pressure of oxygen, you have to do arterial blood glasses, which you, you don't, you're not going to stick a person in the artery every few minutes, I think. So you measure the oxygen sat and you aim to keep that saturation between 88 and 92, and, and you will be all right. So um, that's an uh, important change in thinking that has gone on. Now, what are the consequences of, of, of hypoxemia? Hypoxemia causes regional pulmonary vasoconstriction in response to, uh, unlike hypoxemia, um, systemically will cause dilatation, but centrally it causes um, regional pulmonary vasoconstriction in response to alveolar hypoxia. So that what the lung is trying to do in essence is there's less oxygen available and it's trying to sh shun the blood to, the, uh, to some areas um, that are better perfused. Uh, peripherally, uh, it causes vasodilatation. That's hypoxemia, and that will cause an increase of cardiac output. Now, what does hypoxemia do to, um, to the kidney? It causes erythropoietin to be produced. That erythropoietin is going to act to stimulate the bone marrow. It's going to cause red cells to be produced. That red cell um, is going to uh, increasing red cell production is going to increrease the oxygen uh, carrying capacity of the blood, and that's great. 
but the drawback is that the viscosity of the blood is going to also increase. And indeed, in fact, in some settings, um, that the uh, one we will discuss later, not related COPD patients, um, you will you might even um, look to reduce the viscosity of the blood. If the viscosity of the blood increases, you can get pulmonary hypertension. And you may ask me, are you surprised to hear that you could get pulmonary hypertension? You know, the, the hypoxemia does lead to vasoconstriction of the pulmonary arterioles, and that causes the pulmonary hypertension. And if you get pulmonary hypertension, you get increased pressures on the right heart. So you get right heart failure, and that condition is known as corpulmonale. Corpulmonale. Right-sided heart failure, secondary to increased pulmonary hypertension, corpulmonale. And um, this you can get in patients, you will often see in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. What else does hypoxemia do? It causes loss of cognitive and motor functions. Your, um, impairs your judgment and can cause a, a, a plethora of other conditions such as headaches and palpitations and tremor. And obviously, finally, when you start to get in the range of PO2s of 30 or so, you, you lose consciousness. Why do we treat the hypoxemia? Well, we want to treat the hypoxemia. So as the, as the most important thing is to reduce this dyspnea. It is very uncomfortable. The person sitting down breathing fast all the time, very unpleasant. It's a lot of work for the person. That breathing is at work. It's going to require energy in a person who is not already healthy. So hypoxemia, um, it, it, you want to... It, Correct it to reduce that. It will improve sleep, improved exercise um, capacity. And long term, uh, it improves survival in severely hypoxemic patients. So, especially um, in countries where there was a lot of smoking before, um, they, they got home oxygen and individuals were able to have a better quality of life and they live. Um, somewhat longer. It also causes a slight reduction in pulmonary arterial pressure, and we pointed out the ills of increases of pulmonary arterial pressure. The treatment, um, when you treated these patients, as we said before, it's when the PO2 um, was less than 55, or the oxygen sat less than 88, and if uh, the PO2 was even between 56 and 59, and they had features of corpulmonary cerebral ischemia, or they have, you also treat these patients and titrate them with oxygen.
All right, I give 10 more seconds. Right, as we said, we titrate the oxygen to achieve appropriate oxygen saturations. No, you, and don't forget, if you have a patient who's coming with COPD, comes feeling unwell, shortness of breath and low grade temperature, what do you think could be happening there? What are the kind of things that you'll be looking out for? What might be happening? Huh? Yes, but that's not specifically related to COPD, but that could be one. Any other thoughts? Huh? Yes, he could have a pneumonia. Huh? Look, these folk are going to be especially prone to pneumonia, especially prone to acute bronchitic attacks. So you have to immediately, even whilst you work them up, try to find out what's the offending organism and try to get him re um, rehydrated if they're dehydrated, et cetera, and get him with antibiotics. You want to give oxygen to um, stabilize the situation. All right, we take a break here.